Hi, my name is Kina. This episode is going to be a little bit different than past ones. I'm going to be answering questions from my Patreon subscribers. So I'm just going to be uh, talking about a bunch of different things for like a few minutes and kind of doing uh, or going through topics where I can be a little bit more in depth than TikTok, but not commit like a whole video to one issue so I can kind of cover a wider range. So um, yeah, that's what I'm going to be doing this time. So the first question I'm going to be answering was about how to balance trying to like heal and confront trauma with managing present day symptoms. And the person who asked kind of specifically said that um, they feel that they need to confront their trauma, but they also feel like they don't want to intentionally trigger themselves or cause an emotional flashback and that sometimes confronting trauma can worsen certain symptoms. And so kind of trying to find that balance between symptom management and trauma processing. And I think that's a really awesome question and something that comes up a lot for people. So my perspective on that is, you know, any good therapist will tell you that it's not always safe to go digging for trauma. And there kind of used to be a therapeutic approach to trauma, which was about like really describing the memories in detail. And most therapists have moved away from that approach because it tends to be more like re-traumatizing and triggering than it is effective. And um, I think the reason for that is because if you have CPTSD, that essentially feels like living in a continuing and like perpetual state of trauma in a certain way. Even if there's not like traumatic things happening to you, you're safe. The internal environment and like the emotional reality, um, emotional flashbacks specifically, are like bringing the person back over and over again to a state of helplessness and um, fear and anxiety from uh, childhood trauma in the case of like childhood CPTSD. So it's a very present day reality and it comes out in our reactions in triggers and emotional flashbacks in like body reactions, relationship patterns, all these different things. So I, I think, um, you know, if you're seeing a therapist who's like a good trauma informed therapist and you trust them to help guide you through confronting and processing specific trauma, that can be a good thing. Um, and you know, if you trust your therapist, then you can probably trust them to kind of take you through it at a at a healthy and safe pace. But I think um, the really awesome thing about CPTSD recovery is that you don't necessarily need to intentionally sit down and be like, I'm going to dig through my trauma and figure it out because it comes out naturally in your reactions to things. And so I think what's a lot more effective and a lot safer is instead of working on kind of going back to traumatic times and thinking about them or reliving those memories, I think what's more effective is working on um, becoming more connected to your body and your emotions and doing a lot of psychoeducation, learning a lot about emotional flashbacks and triggers and CPTSD, um, the four F responses. And then as you kind of gain more mindfulness of those things and you work on becoming more uh, in touch with your emotions and your body signals, you basically get natural windows of opportunity to connect with that stuff. And um, I think it happens, it kind of happens at its own pace and you don't have to like rush it or push it. So in terms of symptom management, I think, um, like using regulation tools and uh, working on like feeling safe and calm and grounded and connected to yourself and other people is really the foundation for being able to work through trauma on a deeper level or confront specific traumas that you've been kind of suppressing or avoiding because the more you feel safe in your own body and the more you trust yourself to be able to like handle big emotions and um, regulate yourself when you get triggered, 
And then also the more that you have like a support network, like a good therapist, good friends, a good partner who uh, can create like a safe, supportive environment for you. When that foundation is in place, it does become easier to start processing trauma. And I, I feel like your brain and body kind of allows you to like our mechanisms are very self-protective and a lot of times if we feel kind of disconnected from our trauma it's because maybe like we're not stable or emotionally regulated enough to kind of go there yet so I feel like as you kind of work on those skills and like build that foundation it becomes easier and I think another really important thing is like uh really working on creating an environment of self-compassion instead of shame because if you are reliving traumatic memories or processing traumatic memories and you still are stuck in very shame-based thinking patterns, then you could easily re-traumatize yourself by basically reliving the trauma from the same like shamed and helpless perspective that you first experienced it. Um, whereas like what you want to do is approach the trauma when you have a kind of healthy anchored self to rely on so you can process it and create like a compassionate cohesive narrative about it and kind of approach it in a different way so yeah I think um there are things to focus on that will build the foundation for trauma recovery that are healthier and more and safer you know than kind of going like diving for trauma and you know the other thing is that it comes up naturally and I think emotional flashbacks are a great example like you do not have to trigger your own emotional flashbacks because just emotional flashbacks are a symptom of CPTSD. They happen, and they especially happen if you're early into recovery. So instead of um, doing things that might like trigger a emotional flashback for the sake of healing, you can focus on just becoming aware of your emotional flashbacks, how it feels when they start, like recognizing them early on, and how you respond to yourself when you're experiencing it. And in the moment when you can respond to yourself with compassion, when you can accept your emotions, when you can reach out to like a safe person who can help you co-regulate, those are all things that are very healing of trauma because you are essentially like creating self-trust and creating uh, a new pattern where instead of being rejected or shamed for your emotions, you you feel safe and you can experience compassion from yourself and other people so yeah I think instead of um instead of trauma diving focusing really on the skills and the supports that you have to respond to yourself when you are triggered um when you are having an emotional flashback and um I I've referenced it before but I really recommend Pete Walker's list 13 steps for managing emotional flashbacks and one of the things he talks about is that Emotional flashbacks can be an opportunity to grieve and experience anger and basically like connect with the emotions that you weren't able to fully feel at the time. So they can kind of, those painful moments can end up being opportunities for healing, but only if you kind of have created self-compassion and safety enough to, enough to kind of respond to it that way otherwise it just feels like getting like stuck in that cycle over and over again so yeah that's what I would say are like the important things to start focusing on and then yeah the more grounded you feel in those regulation skills and those safe connections the more you will be able to kind of talk about and look at specific traumatic events and remain grounded in the present and not be re-traumatized by it. Okay, the second question I'm going to answer is, is it normal to 
feel emotions more strongly when you first begin to process trauma and kind of process emotions that you were repressing before. And my answer is yes, for sure. It kind of ties into what I was just talking about where we don't really process things fully until we feel safe to. And so, you know, when we kind of get to a point of learning about TPTSD and starting to like feel a little bit safer and stronger and able to heal um, in that stability is also like kind of a tsunami of information and emotions and memories and um, just kind of painful and intense new awareness that comes up for people and that's super normal and I also think one of the big things that's happening there is that a lot of kids with CPTSD were in environments where they learn to disconnect from their emotions and really just turn them inward so it's really common for like anger healthy anger to just become shame and be turned inward um in like a abusive childhood and it's also really common for people to not ever have really grieved or cried or released like sadness and mourning and loss and and those sorts of emotions because they didn't know how and they didn't have the supports to and we're trying to like avoid that pain and so yeah when when you kind of start giving yourself permission to like confront that stuff and feel that stuff it's really normal and like a lot of people in CPTSD recovery will have like random days where they just get pissed about like stuff that happened to them because they're just seeing it with fresh eyes and they're like oh my god that was so messed up and kind of like as they are less and less blaming themselves kind of reclaiming their right to like self-protective anger towards the people that have hurt them or fail to protect them in their lives and yeah it's also normal to just have like surges of other emotions come up when you're breaking down the walls that you've built um another really common thing that I feel like this ties into is when people get into their first healthy relationship and having like meltdowns with that person that they wouldn't have usually with other people and it's kind of the same as like when a little kid like has one parent that they feel safe with and one that they don't feel as safe with or as comfortable with and so the parent that they feel safer with sees all their worst behavior because they feel more comfortable like letting themselves <laughs> kind of be vulnerable and um be like bad and be kind of unfiltered uh in their expression because they know that they're going to be like accepted and loved and so I think that same kind of thing happens like in adults when they start doing CPTSD recovery is like knowing that you will be accepted by someone for actually like having emotions or standing up for yourself or outside the context of a relationship, just finally feeling like you're accepting yourself a little bit and are allowed to feel those things can can definitely lead to kind of uh, it's like making up for all the time that you spent disconnecting and avoiding emotions is like stronger emotions. So it can be overwhelming, but I also think it's healthy because it's just releasing a lot of built up tension. And I think most people, if they find a way to consistently release and express emotions in a healthy way, it doesn't last forever and they kind of even out later in CPTSD recovery but it is super normal in the beginning. Okay, the next question that I'm going to talk about was um, just kind of a general re request to talk about the ideas of self-doubt and self-trust and how that plays into CPTSD recovery. And I really liked that one. Um, 
I, I think self-doubt is something that is really built into CPTSD because, so, you know, for most people in complex trauma, it's going to happen in the context of relationships because if you're, rec if you're experiencing like recurring trauma over and over again, it's less likely that they're, you know, random events with strangers happening over and over again and much more likely that it's happening within the context of someone that you have relatively frequent contact with, like a parent or sibling or partner. So, you know, when relational trauma happens, people get kind of caught in this really confusing and damaging circumstance where they're wiring for connection and attachment and they're wiring for safety and self-protection are at odds with each other. And, you know, in, uh, in childhood, what happens is that in order to maintain their attachments with caregivers, most kids will learn how to shut down their self-protective instincts, like their anger and their strong emotions and their um, certain parts of their personality or certain needs will become shut down. And this is happening on like a physical level. A lot of times there's like physical dissociation and um, like nervous system hypoarousal happening. And like this process of disconnecting from yourself is something that creates or erodes self-trust. So it's kind of like forced onto, onto people with those experiences, I think. Same with like domestic violence or being in a cult. Like you, you basically learn over time to ignore your own red flags, your body signals, your emotional cues, your needs. And it causes this, um, this really large like disconnection from yourself and from the kind of mechanisms built into us as humans that allow us to navigate the world and know like when to connect with people and when to protect ourselves. So there's a lot of different ways that self-betrayal and self-doubt can be conditioned into someone through trauma. Um, there's a lot of ways that children learn self-betrayal as a pattern because it's modeled for them or forced onto them. Some examples are um, witnessing a parent remaining in an abusive relationship, not setting boundaries or not taking care of themselves is like modeling self-betrayal. Um, <clears throat> being taught to accept certain kinds of abuse and consider it normal is conditioning for self-betrayal. Being taught to repress and hold back certain emotions and needs is conditioning for self-betrayal. And also being gaslit and having your reality denied or having things that happen to you minimized and, um, yeah, like dismissed in severity. So if you had parents, as, as a kid, you had parents who would tell you, like, it really isn't that bad, you're being dramatic or denied abuse that you experienced or um, said, you know, it didn't happen that way or, or those sorts of things that can also be conditioning for self-betrayal. And... Uh, another thing that really like messes with survivor self-trust, I think, is that, you know, I've talked in other videos about what happens with our nervous systems in response to trauma. And one of the things that happens is that we lose our ability to accurately interpret environmental cues and understand if we are safe or in danger. And, you know, our bodies become 
hypervigilant. We're like, we're always seeing danger everywhere, even when there isn't any. So what's one of the side effects of that? If you always feel like you're in danger and you're always flooded with like fear and panic and trauma responses, then normal everyday life when you are safe doesn't even feel that different than like when bad things are happening or when you aren't safe. So the the kind of like chronic fear and anxiety disconnects people from their ability to really detect danger or or like danger cues in their environment because they kind of just learn to doubt themselves or, or drown it out. So a really like a really um, frequent issue for CPTSD survivors is like, I can't tell if this is intuition, if this is my gut, or if this is like anxiety and paranoia, or, you know, I can't tell if I'm in danger right now and I should be doing something, um, or if I'm like just having a flashback and re-experiencing danger from the past. And so those experiences can be really damaging because it can kind of like reinforce for people that they can't trust themselves because maybe they'll you know, they'll get into like a series of abusive relationships uh, and not pick up the red flags. That's a really common thing. People will be like, I don't trust myself to know if my relationship is healthy or not. They won't know when their emotional reactions are reasonable or not. Like they might have a really strong emotional reaction to a really small misstep someone makes and have an equally strong emotional reaction to something actually really messed up that someone does that they need to like do something about. And those things feel the same. So it's like it's hard to trust themselves in that way. So, uh, yeah, I think like rebuilding self-trust is one of the most important things um, for CPTSD recovery. And there's a lot of different components to that. One of the main components is um, different kinds of work to reconnect with your emotions and um, learning about emotional flashbacks so you can differentiate between emotional flashbacks and present day threats. Practicing asking yourself, like, am I responding to danger in the past or the present? Um, and just like validating and not dismissing your own emotions and um, kind of creating like a more accepting internal environment to counteract any dismissal or um, minimization that you have experienced in the past, like taking yourself seriously. Um, and yeah, just like working on learning to differentiate between past and present danger is a really important step. And then another really important step is working on boundaries and assertiveness because um, when we get conditioned for self-betrayal and, and don't learn to like assert ourselves, it becomes a self-repeating pattern where like, if you can't set boundaries or stand up for yourself, you end up violating your own boundaries and violating your own needs and not asking for what you want and not stating your truth over and over and over again. And every time you like lie about how you feel or say something's fine when it's not, or agree to do something you don't actually want to do, you're like recreating that experience of, um, of, not being able of like not having anyone to stand up for you because now it's you who has to do that and you didn't learn those skills yet. So yeah, um, setting, setting boundaries and learning assertiveness is really, really important because it creates self-trust. It helps build self-trust. And the other great thing about like boundaries and assertiveness is that it doesn't have to be rational. Like you can just feel a way and just kind of do what you need to take care of yourself and it doesn't have to be explainable or rational and that kind of like self-nurturing is really important um and the other thing about setting boundaries and being assertive is that the more you trust yourself to say no if you're being mistreated to ask for what you need to advocate for your feelings and your experiences, the more you've practiced those skills, the safer you will then feel attaching and connecting with people because 
a lot of the defensive mechanisms people have that like keep them distanced or um, shut off from close relationships is due to these kind of like subconscious fears that being in a relationship or being intimate or close with someone will mean um, the, the possibility of getting hurt or being mistreated or ending up kind of like trapped back in a bad situation. And so the more you trust yourself to break those patterns and stand up for yourself, the more you can kind of relax and like take risks to connect with people. So it's a really positive, positively reinforcing cycle when you start doing that. Okay, the next question is strategies for calming anxiety when triggered or when anxiety is like a common uh, common state that you can go into. And I'm going to like speed run through some kind of different approaches. So um, I'm big on like holistic approaches to trauma and offering lots of different strategies because different things work for different people. And uh, the way I like to kind of break it down is that Trauma impacts everything, and there are kind of five main domains that we can work with, and those are physical and somatic, so like the way that trauma is felt and released through the body, emotional, just like how it feels and the emotions that we can um, express and like process, Uh, cognitive, so like our thought patterns, our beliefs, and our perspective on things, Uh, relational and social, so our ability to co-regulate with others, our support network, and our ability to get receive comfort and um comfort and support and soothing from others so there are kind of four main domains that i feel like we can work on trauma with and those are cognitive so looking at like our thinking patterns and perspectives and beliefs about ourselves and other people um emotional so just our emotional experiences and the ways that we can like connect with and process and express emotions and then there's somatic and physical like the way that trauma is both stored and released in the body and um like getting connected with your body's cues and signals and then social relational like your ability to co-regulate with other people receive social support and have reparative experiences of um receiving like calming and grounding from other people so I think it's important to kind of have strategies that fit into all four of those and you can try different ones or pick what works best for you um they're all a part of healing, but they don't always go in the same order of operations for everybody. Like there might be one person who feels really uncomfortable connecting with their body and somatic exercises trigger them and they're not ready for that yet. And they need to focus on more like emotional and cognitive approaches. And then for some people, um, cognitive approaches can kind of make them feel like crazy and overly analytical and they need something a little bit more free form and like somatic or creative. So that's why I'm kind of running through like a bunch of different, bunch of different approaches to, um, how to kind of regulate triggers in general, but especially anxiety. So, uh, from like a somatic physical approach, anxiety is very much like held in the body. Usually people can feel it in their stomach, like not in their stomach or in their chest, like tightness. So, um, there's a lot of different physical grounding exercises that you can do to kind of try to release that tension and anxiety on a physical level. Um, Some people enjoy deep breathing or like yoga or stretching. Um, Some people like progressive muscle relaxation, which you can look up. Uh, I like to use five senses grounding techniques where you, you kind of like engage all five senses mindfully. So I'll like, um, I would recommend if this sounds like something that might be helpful for you, getting like a scent of something you like, like an essential oil, having um, 
something sensory, either like rubbing something fuzzy or soft or touching something comforting or like a full body sensory thing, like getting under a heavy blanket or taking a shower or something like that. Um, and then tasting something that like dark chocolate, something kind of with like a rich flavor that you can focus on, um, listening to music or becoming mindful of like the sounds around you and then just visually connecting with your environment, um, by like looking at, um, like the art around your apartment or, um, going outside and just like looking at the trees in your neighborhood or that sort of thing. So using all five senses can help with nervous system regulation and like grounding. Anxiety usually means that your nervous system is in like a hyper aroused and, um, kind of on edge, like hypervigilant state. So you're trying to find ways to like feel calm and relaxed. Um, so, yeah, those are um, some somatic approaches. Other somatic approaches are, like, um, more freeform. Like, some people like dancing or, like, wiggling it out or, like, jumping or running or kind of big movements that can get, like, tension and energy out. Um, and then also using your voice and, like, singing or yelling or crying or um, just kind of, like, making noises even if you feel silly. Um, just kind of ways to, like, get energy moving through your body so you're not stagnant and you can experiment with, like, which of those feels best for you. Um, and you can also do like mindfulness of just kind of paying attention to how it feels in your body and trying to like breathe into that part of your body and kind of slowly relax. You can kind of try different ones of those. So that's, those are some like somatic and physical approaches. Um, in terms of like an emotional approach, I think, um, that is an approach where if you feel like the anxiety is rooted in some like deeper emotions or something else has triggered you or it's kind of not, it, it you feel like there might be kind of something going on that's like swelling up and coming out in anxiety because a lot of times emotions will lead to anxiety or like needs will lead to anxiety. Um, emotional techniques can be um, using compassionate self-inquiry to ask yourself questions about like, what am I feeling right now? What is this reminding me of? Um, what's the first time I can remember feeling this way? What do I think I need right now? Um, and then kind of as answers come up, like trying to just allow yourself to feel them and really practicing like mindfulness and self-acceptance and non, non-judgment. And you can even like say reassuring things to yourself, like it's okay to feel this way. Like this feeling is going to pass. Um, I think sometimes anxiety can get worse when you get anxious about being anxious. Cause you're like, oh, I'm going to be anxious forever. So, um, trying to like remind yourself that like, I've had this feeling before it's going to pass. Um, and then if it feels natural to you or if it kind of comes up, like allowing yourself to like cry or um, just kind of like experience the anxiety and the feeling without pushing it away or um, judging yourself for it and kind of seeing um, what emotions you can connect to when you do that. And sometimes that can lead to like a release that you didn't even know you needed, that that was kind of like building up to that anxiety. Um, so that is, uh, something you can keep in mind and, um, and then for social and relational, uh, you know, that is just about reminding yourself that you don't have to always be able to regulate alone or figure out everything by yourself. And sometimes you just like need someone to talk to who can help you out. And like when we are dysregulated, co-regulation happens from finding someone else that we trust who can be regulated enough and secure enough to kind of like provide a stable base and help us get back into a regulated zone. And 
you know, you guys can probably relate to the feeling of like if you're anxious and then you're, you're with someone who's like grounded and not anxious and also like sees you and hears you and is there for you, that can really help bring you back down. So using co-regulation is uh, super valuable and um, you can kind of start that in therapy and then, um, you know, identify other safe and secure connections in your life that might be able to like offer you that co-regulation and reach out for those supports and, um, you know, it's, it's okay to feel anxious and like need other people to kind of help, uh, help reassure you and like calm you down sometimes. We all need that. So reaching out to those social supports can be really helpful and saying stuff out loud to another person, like verbal venting and just like if, if your anxiety takes the form of like intrusive thoughts or obsessive worry, just being able to kind of like talk it out with someone and um, get rid of any like shame or stigma attached to it and just be honest. Like co-regulation occurs when you kind of let someone else see your inner world or you let someone else see your inner child and you um, – even if they don't have any advice to offer, even if all they do is just kind of see you and hear you, that in itself can be really comforting <laughs> because um, it breaks the sense of like isolation and just makes it feel more okay to feel how you feel and um, can be really regulating. So I definitely recommend uh, using that whenever it, it feels possible and safe. And then um, the last one is cognitive. And um, a lot of people learn some skills that you can use to kind of look at your thought patterns in like cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, these practices can be helpful for um, reminding yourself of your skills and kind of getting out of like a frantic child mindset and into like a adult mindset where you know that you have skills and you have tools that you can use. And yeah, some common cognitive practices um, are things like decatastrophizing, resisting black and white thinking or um, eternity thinking, like this is going to last forever. I'm always going to feel this way. It's always going to be this way. Um, and yeah, essentially like noticing and counteracting um, dogmatic black and white or shame-based thinking. And some valuable stuff to look into can be like core beliefs and identifying what core beliefs are and um, noticing like sometimes when anxiety comes up, there are also like core beliefs that are coming up that are either causing or contributing to that anxiety. Um, and yeah, that those kinds of cognitive uh, practices can be a good way to start to confront the inner critic, which is really common for people with CPTSD, just like an inner critical voice. So paying attention to those thoughts and starting to counteract them with, um, with like self-compassionate and accepting thoughts, um, and kind of trying to change like the internal dialogue that you have with yourself when you're anxious or when you're having a hard time. So yeah, very brief, but those are just some examples of how those different kind of realms, uh, can come together. And then you can use like fun combinations of those and it just depends on the situation and what's available to you and what works for you. But you know, maybe like one day you're anxious and you like go for a walk and get physical energy out and then you call a friend on the phone and talk and then you use some like journaling and crying and then you feel better. So um, as you kind of practice those different skills, you'll figure out what works for you and um, kind of what the what the best process is to handle your specific anxiety. Okay, and the last question that I'm going to answer for today's episode was about how to tell the difference between fawning and just being kind of generous and caring. And if you're not familiar with it, fawning is a trauma response that is often called the codependent trauma response and is characterized by patterns of people-pleasing, self-sacrifice, and 
um, kind of vigilance of other people's emotions and needs over your own as a mechanism for safety and connection. So, you know, people with uh, fawn-type trauma responses tend to be very, like, empathetic and generous and giving. And a lot of times those are really positive traits um, that, you know, you rightfully can feel good about and appreciate in yourself. And so the question is, like, how do you tell when those are just um, – when you're when you're giving out of a place of just, like, love and compassion and generosity and it's healthy or when you're falling into maybe fawning patterns of, like, self-sacrifice and overgiving and, like, over-people-pleasing and those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, my answer to that is – I think instead of focusing on not giving or um, not being too nice or those sorts of things, it might be a little bit more helpful to focus on what you are asking for and advocating for and how you are receiving love and support. Because, um, you know, I think what's important is that it's reciprocal and when, when fawn types are caught up in like a fawning pattern, they tend to focus on other people's like emotions and well-being as a way to disconnect from their own but also as a way to avoid like the vulnerability and potential rejection of having needs and not having them met and so it becomes easier to just like meet other people's needs and kind of ignore your own so I think what's really important for fawn types isn't to stop giving you know necessarily to others um because like I think as you get further into recovery you will notice um if you're feeling good about it or if there's like resistance or you're somehow like sacrificing or betraying or or harming yourself to do so but I think the bigger question is you know not analyzing like what's my intention every time you say yes or or offer to do something nice for someone but instead to think about like are you getting your needs met are you asking support for support when you need it um are you expressing like the truth of your emotions are you allowing yourself to be vulnerable are you uh allowing yourself to not always be perfect and on, you know, can you have an off day with someone? Can you feel safe with someone when you're not on? Um, I think those are the things that are significant. And then another thing for font types is like, again, boundaries and assertiveness. Um, so, you know, if you work on those, I think what happens is that your natural traits of kindness and generosity are restored in balance with kindness and generosity for yourself and an understanding that fulfilling relationships come from, you know, mutual vulnerability and support. And, um, yeah, so I think, um, that would be my advice is like the, the natural capacity that some people have for compassion and empathy and generosity is a beautiful trait and the problem is when that compassion generosity and openness is not applied to themselves it's like a it's a one-sided transaction that is this kind of self-protective mechanism so work on like opening up your end of it if that's something that you experience and like work on making sure that just as much as you can be there for someone when they cry that like you can go cry on someone else or that just as much as um you're willing to like inconvenience yourself to help out a friend that like you a friend that you could call and ask them to help you out with something and they would do it and you know not every time obviously um and and then I think the other thing is like making sure that the people you're being generous with also respect your boundaries and care about you because you know it it becomes draining and self-sacrificial when you feel unappreciated 
or when you feel like it's one-sided and they don't return the same kind of um, effort and care that you do. And uh, it also becomes dysfunctional if they don't respect you saying no, because it can't really be a yes if you feel like you can't say no. Like if someone asks you to do something and you're going to get guilt tripped or shamed or somehow kind of um, punished for not doing it, then it's not really a genuine yes. So yeah, looking at like boundaries and assertiveness and um, practicing saying no. Uh, and then, yeah, another just like easy tip is that if you tend to kind of say yes automatically and you want time to like check in with yourself and think about what your boundaries are and what you're willing to do, a really helpful sentence is just like, let me think about it and get back to you whenever someone asks. Because if you know your automatic response is going to be yes, it can just be a good practice to be like, let me think about it and get back to you. And then you have a little bit of time to actually like think about it and be like, okay, do I want to do that? Um, or do I feel some sense of obligation? Am I acting out of fear that if I say no, they're going to be mad or they're not going to think of me as highly? Um, and, and kind of like check in with yourself about those things. Okay, awesome. That was my episode for today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I am going to be doing more of these Q&A type videos. If you would like to submit your own questions, then um, I'm going to be prioritizing the questions that I get on Patreon. So uh, if you are interested in subscribing to my Patreon, I will make sure to answer any questions you have in a video or writing or whatever medium you prefer. And yeah, thank you guys for supporting.